KP, KPC, News, Information, Culture, KPCC, California Sensibility. Hey, I'm Amy Choi. And I'm Rebecca Lair. And we, as usual, are the Mashup Americans. <laughs> Happy New Year, Rebecca. It's 2017. Oh, what even is happening? (laughs) It's crazy. It's totally crazy that it's 2017 because actually in my mind, it's always basically 1998 and then Uh it was just 1998. I'm like, oh, remember Uh when Clueless (laughs) came out a couple years ago? You know? Is there something about that? Because for me, it's always 97. Yeah. Something formative happened in that time. I mean, I don't know what it is. A lot. I don't know either. (laughs) We'll be back to you guys with that, with important research about what happened in 1997 and 1998 that makes us think it's always just that year. I think probably because like the 2000s, what is that? That felt so unknowable. You know, no, like, such a blur. Such a blur. Anyways, um, so do you have any resolutions for this year? Do you make resolutions? I do. Oh, okay. I do. Go. I do. I've been known to make a resolution or two. They're not always the most effective um, tool for me, let's say, but I think Isn't this one is Isn't that the stick. thing about resolutions? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But my resolution in 2017 is not to do shit I don't want to do. Okay. She's not going to do it. Okay. Don't. Do it. Uh, I'm not gonna. No more <laughs> obligatory crap in my life. Everything I do, I'm gonna do because I actually want to. I love that story. Thank you. What about you? My thing, I think, is to be with more people in real life. Um, mm, IRL. IRL, yeah. Because I'm a new mom and we work in a studio and then we're on the computer or and we're remote from each other and it's so easy for me to get sucked into this solo wormhole because I I work well silently in a room. But actually, (laughs) I'm so much better when I'm with other people and in a part of a community. So I think it's probably more important for me than ever to be more connected and into my real community, the people around me and working with them and healing and working together and, you know, going to an office and being around other people. So you mean the world is not just like one big, huge Twitter feed Facebook group? Facebook message. Just one long one. Yeah. Just one big one. Yeah. yeah. Well, so I think that's such a good one because I, I know that for me, especially like post-election, it just felt like I was running in circles either in my own head or on social media. Yeah. And like that actually just makes a person mad. You can drive you mad. Completely mad. So guys, we felt like we needed to call in the experts on community and mental health. Um, so we called Dr. Mindy Fullove. She's a research psychiatrist at the New York State Psychiatric Institute. She works on urban mental health and our collective consciousness. And she's just really smart and thoughtful. We talked about collective trauma, like what we've been feeling the past couple months, and really, you know, beginning of a new year, how best to heal, move forward, and fight. We always say at Mashup that we are where America goes for therapy. It's possible we uh, actually just had therapy on our podcast. Yes, it is possible. (laughs) We definitely owe her a copay. Checks in the mail. On to the show.
Hi, Mindy. Mindy, how are you today? I'm good. How are you? How do you mash up? Um, my father was black and Indian and white, and my mother was many kinds of white, like Irish, English, German. So my family is also interreligious. Some of my family is Jewish. Some of my family is Unitarian Universalist. Mm. Um, what is your comfort food? Well, basically anything with butter. <laughs> right. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, that sounds well, right. <laughs> it's interesting. In thinking about comfort food, I would say that in the past four months of my life, I've eaten more of my comfort food than I probably have since I was a child because the ramp up to the election, the election, and the aftermath has just been uh, so stressful. Mm. But that's really what we were hoping to talk to you about today is that this idea of trauma, which sounds like a really bleak way to start off the new year. But um, I think, you know, we're about exploring what went wrong and figuring out tools to move forward. So, you know, many people have used the word traumatized to describe how they felt about Donald Trump winning the presidential election. Now, from your perspective as an expert, do you think that's a fair assessment? Like, is trauma subjective? So I'm a psychiatrist and I've uh, done a lot of work on trauma and what is traumatizing to people. I, I really do think it's a fair assessment because there are two things that I think were very traumatizing. One was the kind of things he said that he was allowed to say. Mm-hmm. So he was allowed mm-hmm. to attack a judge. He was allowed to attack the pope. Uh, he was <laughs> allowed to be endorsed by the Ku Klux Klan. Mm-hmm. And, and the accumulation of all those things and that he was still a viable candidate for president the implication of that was absolutely terrifying. I mean, a, a level of terror where people really felt their lives were going to be in danger by this. Mm-hmm. What also underscored that, and I, I think made it really traumatizing, was the extent to which as he endorsed that, acts of of various kinds that we really hadn't seen before. So people painting swastikas or people yelling at other people, um, really started to escalate. So he gave permission for a lot of racism to be expressed in society without any holds barred. And he said things Mm -hmm. like, maybe the Second Amendment people would take care of Hillary. Mm. But the other thing was, part of that was that there were videos of people at Trump rallies in what I would call a state of altered consciousness in which their rage and their ability to express their rage in these racist ways was transporting them was Mm. quite terrifying. So for people, and then to have this guy elected president of the United States with a Republican Congress and with the ability to appoint very reactionary judges, so therefore control all three branches of government, I I think is a profound trauma. Can you define what trauma is? Are there textbook definitions of it? The textbook definition is that trauma is a threat it's like experiencing or witnessing a threat to life and limb. So I think this is traumatizing because people actually do feel like their lives are threatened. Mm-hmm. In in a larger sense, a lot of my writing has been about processes in society where we rip society apart. What I've talked about is the traumatic stress reaction to the loss of all or part of one's emotional ecosystem, what mm-hmm. I call root shock from which is a term I took from gardeners who write about when you yank a plant out of the ground and you destroy its root system, it may have trouble surviving, getting moved to another place. Mm. The way that makes sense here is that for those of us who thought we were building a multicultural America, a mashup America, to use your phrase, 
that's been ripped away from us. And wow. so, yeah. so what we're having is this traumatic stress reaction to the loss of our dream of what America could be as a place where people live together peaceably and made society together. Oh, God. Wow, Mindy, you actually just exactly verbalized everything that we have been feeling the past couple months. Root shock. Yeah. And the shock of that, the loss of that dream. That shock, is there a prescription for it? You know, like what are, what can we do to heal and move on from root shock? There are three major psychological consequences of root shock. One is, and this has to do with what are our relationships to our place, psychological connections to place. So one is that when we are in a place that we know and trust, we feel oriented. For example, your work, you felt oriented to how are we going to build a multicultural society. So you were going to do publishing and a newsletter and podcast to help people talk about this. Mm-hmm. So that's been your orientation. In this new society, how do you how do you find your orientation of your work? So that's the disorientation is in the first part, very, very important. And so people have talked about just like not knowing where they were or not knowing where to go or not knowing how to breathe. So mm-hmm. the, the, it's like, wait, what do I do next? Which is your question, right? That comes mm-hmm. from the disorientation. Like I thought the world was going to work one way and now it's not. It's going to work another way. What do I do next? Part of that is one of the leaders that I heard who really impressed me said when she'd been studying demagogues in Central and Latin America, all throughout Latin America, and said, trust that they say, they'll do what they say they're going to do. So if Trump says he's going to dis- deport immigrants, trust that that's what's going to be on his agenda. A lot of people are like, well, probably he'll negotiate. Why? What evidence is there of that? Yeah. So trust that he is who he says he is, and he is who we saw through the election. That's what we're going to be up against. And therefore, orient yourself. Given that, then I think the second thing is that in trying to decide how you manage that is pick a direction, because several directions are going to emerge once you have orientation. How do you pick one? You pick one based on your values. This is very much a time for really thinking, what is it you value? What is it that, what is your vision of America? Mm. Because that's what's going to tell you where to go next. And then concretely, you have to gather with other people and figure out how do we, how do we repair? How do we rebuild from where we are? Um, my father, who was an organizer, always used to say that at any time, capitalism could take off the velvet glove and what you would see is the iron hand. Mm. So I think this is a moment. I don't think this is similar even to things people have experienced. I think this is a new and different thing we're up against. And what's essential is that we look at it very closely and understand what it is and that we are all in this thing together. My understanding is you talk about pressure on communities, the pressure that communities feel, how they with withstand that. What does a community's resilience look like? Does pressure help a community to to galvanize and work together and and get out of the situation they're in? And at what point is, does it have the opposite effect? Is there some kind of tipping point where it's just too much pressure and kind of more destructive of the community? To pose a, a, a different way of looking at it, when we see a football player get knocked down mm-hmm. and he's sort of out cold for 30 seconds, but then he gets back to his feet and he goes back into the game. Yeah. Our reaction is, oh, that's great. Nothing happened and we cheer. But lately we've learned that, in fact, 
those kinds of getting knocked out and having a concussion is actually traumatizing the brain and that over time of head injuries, people can develop this chronic traumatic encephalopathy, then they die young with right. dementia. Right. So mm-hmm. it's not good to get knocked on the head. And, and the whole bouncing back onto the field, which seems like, which is what people say, oh, the football players are so resilient. They just bounce back. Hmm. But there's something secret going on inside the brain, which we can't see, which is actually killing that young man. So it's very short-sighted. It's like you're thinking in that precise moment what you see versus even a few years later what the cumulative trauma. Exactly. There's a a way of studying the accumulated effects of childhood trauma, Mm. which is called adverse childhood experiences, uh, shortened to ACEs. And the idea is that if you have, you know, your parents get divorced or somebody has mental illness or there's, you know, violence in the home, that these kinds of experiences have a cost in childhood. But it turns out that if you have an accumulation of these, you're much more likely to have various kinds of illnesses. Hmm. And if you have a a large number on these scales that they use, you're going to die 10 years younger than somebody who didn't. (gasps) Oh, my God. The point is that if you're raising a child, you're trying to protect them. And if you do protect them, they're going to have the best outcome. It's like if you're a gardener. You want to prepare fabulous soil. You want to give just the right amount of water. And your plants are going to prosper. So that's what we want Mm-hmm. In terms of, you know, what are we for? We want to create conditions where people and communities can prosper. Pressure on communities is like aces in childhood or concussions in football players. Mm. It gets in the way of communities doing the work they have to do. Communities always have so much work to do. And if they get set back, they're not going to do the work as effectively. So the goal is how do we avoid pressure on communities? How do we have stable communities that have adequate resources, that have access to the goods and services of society? Because then not only can they take care of basic work that communities do, then they can also invent. And really what you want is communities across the board that are full of creativity and invention. Because then mm-hmm. we find solutions to problems and we invent new, new whole new ways of living that will benefit us. And and we are, in a larger sense at a point, given global warming and all the changes in the structure of jobs, where we're desperately in need of invention. Pressure on communities that destroys them and derails them is not only costly for communities, but it sucks up all the energy that should be going into invention and means we're not going to go into the future ready for it. Hmm. They say that this year has been the most catastrophic for the Arctic ice cap. Mm -hmm. Well, what do we do about that? We could invent something, but we're too busy being traumatized. (laughs) So that's how I look at it. Every day on Facebook, we are sharing, and you guys are telling amazing stories about what it means to be American today. Join us at facebook.com slash Does the daily trauma of that accumulated pressure and those accumulated damages that um, some communities are facing, does that affect 
us over generations or affect our genes the way that it's been found that, you know, some studies have found that the, a trauma like the Holocaust has affected the genes of children and grandchildren of survivors? Um, there is no question that we're paying lots of costs that will be transmitted generationally. People talk about two kinds of inheritance. The inheritance that's DNA and then our inheritance that's cultural. And both of those are affected by our experiences. Mm -hmm. What are the cultural inheritances of the Holocaust and how does that weigh on people? And how will it weigh on them until eternity? What choices do they make because of the Holocaust? One friend of mine was saying she was feeling very, very frightened in this period. And her family was thinking of going to Israel because she thought she would feel safer there. But that's because of the, the experience of the Holocaust in her family. Mm-hmm. So, so the cultural inheritance and then, and then all the ways in which you know, gene expression is altered by environment, th- these are all happening to us. And so our bodies are going to, in many ways, affect what goes on. You know, if somebody dies younger, 20 years younger, because of adverse experiences, their children will have lost parents and grandparents 10 years younger. If you think mm-hmm. about the whole African-American community as an example where people died 10 to 15 years younger than in white communities, think about the, the, what that does to the availability of elders to hold wisdom. Mm. To some extent, well-to-do white families that have elders that are in their 90s, think of the wisdom that they have and the, and the knowledge of history that mm-hmm. they have available to them that black families just don't have. That's so interesting. Amy and I were just talking about this, not relative to black families, but um, relative to our own families. It's really interesting to hear it contextualized. For instance, my grandmothers are actually both in their 90s, Jewish women who um, fled Nazi-occupied Europe. I always thought their lives, you know, was were important stories, and I've learned so much from them. And then I've get this stable life that goes from there. You know, like this is the first time in my life that I feel like potentially the cycle will is starting again. I do feel that I've gotten the opportunity with a 94-year-old and a 97-year-old grandmother to hear these stories and to feel them and to have them kind of really in my DNA that I I really understand I know them. And so I'm trying to see how I can learn from them. Yeah, I think that's really important. And that's the cultural part of the inheritance. Yeah. It's profound. So how do we bolster ourselves for the fight ahead. So we talked, you know, we're we're reorienting ourselves to our new reality. We are determining and kind of fortifying our own value systems. And then it, for me that that third step feels still feels a little I don't know, not squishy. The third step is, you know, finding the our community to do that with, being inventive with the people around us, thinking about what we can add. You know, how do we really prepare ourselves for what's ahead? Well, that's the step where you have to go to a meeting. Mm-hmm. I, I am part of a group called the University of Orange, which is a free people's university in Orange, New Jersey. Hmm. Every year we have what we call a Jan term, which is when we teach about urbanism. And we give an urbanism certificate to people who have attended a seminar, done some volunteer work, and gone on a field trip. So this year... Right after the election, as we started to plan our our Jan term, we were 
talking to many people about this question of like, yeah, so given our values, like having clarified our values, how do we gather people and what do we gather them for? And one of the principles that we work from is the principle of find what you're for, which was a principle that my, my dad taught us. Our Jan term is, co- is called um, find what you're for, but what it's connected to also is a, a suggestion, a project from some colleagues of ours at the Design Studio for Social Intervention, who said that in, in these moments, people need to be able to come together at social emergency response centers, hmm. which we thought was a great idea. You got to know where to go to say, okay, what do we do next? Kind of like you have, you know, if it's a hurricane, you'd have a shelter at the school. Mm. So mm-hmm. what do you do if it's a, you know, police shooting or something like that? Well, then you go to the social emergency response center. Mm. So I, I think that's what you have to do. You have to go to a meeting, either go to a meeting to organize a meeting or go to a meeting that somebody else organizes. That's the point at which you go to a meeting. I think mm-hmm. it's that m- makes a lot of sense. And what's clear about that to me is that. Facebook, for instance, and social media are good tools maybe for finding those meetings, but they can't replace the meetings themselves. Being together, the humanity of that, and going out into the world and going to meet people where they are, it feels so, it feels so important in this moment in, in, of connecting us because I, I feel so much that m- most of my experiences right now are with this trauma post-election are online and it's easy to lose any humanity there. Yeah. Yeah. No, you got to get out and be face to face with people because, you know, part of this is you talked about how is it hurting our bodies? It's partly you need hugs and you need yeah. people to smile mm. at you. You need to be with all the generations of your community and you need to break bread together. Um, and you need to know that you know, we can be present for each other through what's going to come. So, you know, we're going to go demonstrate together and we're going to go get petitions signed together. And we've got a lot of things to do and we're going to do them together. So we've got to go to meetings. That That's really in terms of, of, of root shock, what you have to do to get things back on course. How does culture affect how certain communities, let's say, respond to collective trauma? Really, one of the great commentators on this was Kai Erickson, who wrote Mm -hmm. this classic book called Everything in Its Path, which was about the Buffalo Creek disaster, a a massive uh, flood that wiped out communities along, mining communities along the Buffalo Creek in West Virginia. And he said that the way it worked was that communities have cultural axes and that those determine how people are going to respond. So, for example, in that community, people were very dependent on each other. In the aftermath of the disaster, people were placed willy-nilly in sort of emergency housing. So they weren't next to the people that had lived with them. So they mm-hmm. couldn't find their friends and they couldn't find their neighbors. Mm. And they weren't together in the same way. And this was very disabling for them. But he thought it was part of, of, of the culture of how they lived, this like great dependency, which was also a strength. They were very intimate with each other. But in that moment of crisis, they didn't know what to do without each other. Mm. So part of this is, you know, how do, how do cultures feel about, about dependency? How do cultures feel about um, protest? The Japanese Americans who were interned in a really extensive study done at that time of the post-internment camp, worked incredibly hard to organize themselves in the internment camp Mm -hmm. and 
to create order and to make it productive. Hmm. And I, I think that was very a very cultural response to what to do in that situation and very much came out of how their communities were working before they were interned. There's a film um, called Passing Poston, which talks about some of the things that came out of that. So they created some fields that became useful for the Navajos who lived in that area. But they just worked so hard and they created so much order that it became, it got passed along in a way. So mm. cultures are very different and the gifts they're going to bring to the moment are going to be different and the liabilities they're going to bring to the moment are going to be very different. Come to decide that the things that I tried were in my life just to get high on. When I sit alone, come get a little known, but I need more than myself this time. Step from the road to the sea to the sky and I do believe it. If you guys love the stories we share, sign up for our newsletter at mashupamericans.com slash newsletter. Every Saturday morning, you'll get our roundup of mashup news from around the world delivered right to you. It'll make you think, laugh, and have your thoughts provoked. Could there be a better way to wake up on the weekend? Mm, we think not. So do it. Mashupamericans.com slash newsletter. When will I know that I really can go to the well once more time to decide on? When it's killing me, when will I really see all that I need to look inside? Come to believe that I better not leave it. What are the gifts and liabilities that American culture will lend to our building and our fight that's going to happen in the next few years? Uh, hmm. Well, that's a tough question. Demagogy brings out uh, collective madness because people that are brought together and allowed to express parts of themselves that are suppressed elsewhere and then allowed to act on those things can do things that they, that they wouldn't do at another time. So in the history of the United States, there's been this history of, of you know, the Klan riding at night to burn crosses and to lynch people. And people did those things collectively, and it was an ordinary person wouldn't lynch another ordinary person. But right. a group that's been riled up and allowed to go to that level of hatred can kill another person. And, you know, we've seen the photos of lynching take pride in it, a joy in it. So it's not it's not simply what do we have inside us. I, I think all of us have a lot, and we have hatred, we have love, we have, you know, the capacity to exceed our own expectations. We have the capacity to be far worse than we ever knew we could be. And so it's not simply what we have in our culture, but what demagoguery is going to pull out of us. So why did good Germans go along with Hitler? They were involved in a group think that gave permission for unbelievable evil. Our job is to constantly break up the group think. Mm. And happily, we have amazing examples of this in our culture, in our history people who have attacked the group think until reason was restored. So lynching and Jim Crow and the brutality of that constantly fought by people. Ida B. Wells, for example, it was like mm -hmm. a one-woman anti-lynching campaign. Hmm. People who you know, fought against McCarthyism. Mm -hmm. So we have to draw on our history. Like, How do we break up the group think that's allowing evil to flourish? And when we talked about our American values, what's going to get us in trouble? What's going to get us in trouble is that we think it's normal to be divided. Mm. What's going to save us? Actually, we really can enjoy each other when we get together. We kind of know we're a melting pot. We just have to be led by the hand to the melting pot situation. Like, oh, this is fine. I can do this. I mean, how could we not want to be led by the hand to like a cookout where we're playing hip hop 
making Korean barbecue. Yeah. Like, I mean. Someone serving tamales. Exactly. Uh, no, that sounds way how better. How could we not? How could we not? That would be the best. That's our meeting agenda. That's what we're going to do. That's how we'll host our first meeting as yeah. we come out of this. We're reorienting and we're starting meetings. Mindy, you're invited. Yeah, mashup barbecue. It sounds so good. All right. Well, thank you so much. This was really, I think, a tough and necessary subject for us to tackle. And I already feel more oriented. I already feel oh, I'm so glad. Yeah, empowered good. to think about really clarifying what are those values? What are the next steps? How are we going to solidify our community? And how are we going to find what we're for, to quote your dad? Yeah. And, you know, you really actually, because you already have this concept of mashup, you're in a position to provide real leadership about how do we build bridges across these divides that are so popular, but so disastrous. Go for it. Lead us. Lead us out of this. Yes. Okay. Oh. Well, you're you're our official um, psychiatrist, so I hope you're well <laughs> willing to join. <laughs> anytime. Anytime. Thank you so much, Mindy. Thank you, Mindy. Is it weird that I found this conversation about trauma uplifting? Mm, yes and no. Okay, because it feels like, <laughs> I think it's just because it feels like we have a plan now. And also, I love learning things about human nature that are incredibly surprising, like how intertwined our bodies and minds are and how intertwined our bodies and minds are with our families and communities. I'm going to think about root shock maybe forever. Over generations. It's crazy. And bananas. Okay, well, so in this new year, based on what we've learned, in addition to not doing shit we don't want to do in 2017, we are resolved, Mashup America, to reorient ourselves, find out what we're for, and to make a meeting. Thank you so much to Dr. Mindy Folola for joining us and inspiring us to get out there and be in our communities. And thank you to all of you, our community. We also know that you guys probably need a detox uh, because we certainly do. So we put together um, detox traditions from around the world at mashupamericans.com. Check it out. And as a reminder, the Mashup Americans are me, Rebecca Lehrer. And me, Amy Choi. Our producer today was Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our show is produced by American Public Media and Southern California Public Radio, KPCC. We're also supported in part by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts on the web at arts.gov. 2017, not 1998. <laughs> no way. <laughs> Freedom.